All right, family. So like I said, we are in a series through the book of 1 Peter called Resilient Faith. And why don't you get out your Bibles now and grab them? So Seamus O'Connell, I'm, I'm talking to you, man. I know you're probably eating some snacks, eating some popcorn or something right now. I want you to set that aside. Grab your Bible. Um, Elena, I always picture you, if you're at your house, wearing some kind of very warm, big blanket. I'm going to ask you just kind of open it up, grab your Bible, pull it out. We are in 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're looking at verses 3 through 9 tonight. And guys, we're talking about heaven tonight, okay? And, and it almost needs no introduction, but let me say this. The discontent and the frustration that we all feel in this life is because we think that earth is supposed to be heaven, okay? Even when life is going great, it's like we hit this ceiling. It doesn't totally satisfy us. Have you ever bumped your head on a ceiling before? You know, like really painful, sharp pain right here. It's, it's agitating. And what I'm telling you is that's a picture of life at its best. That's why celebrities who have like the whole world at their fingertips, they can't stay married and they can actually be some of the most miserable people you'll ever meet. They're discontent. And for many of you, the chapter of your story that you're in right now, it actually isn't going great. You're suffering and you can get disillusioned with this world. And sometimes through tears, we just cry out like the world isn't supposed to be this way. I remember when I started to notice this tension and just kind of feel this when I was in college. And then I read this line in a book called The Weight of Glory. This is what it said. If we find within ourselves a desire that nothing else in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And if you remember last week in 1 Peter verses 1 and 2, we learned that Christians, we are called elect exiles in this world, right? We're chosen by God, but we're strangers to the world. We're like these pilgrims who are on a journey to our true home. And in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, it says that this has actually always been true for the people of God throughout history, right? We live and we die in this world as exiles, and then we wake up in our true home. Listen to how Hebrews 11 describes this. It's talking about the, the people of faith in the Bible. It says, these all, they, they died in faith, not having received the things that were promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were actually strangers and exiles on the earth. He's talking about people like Moses and people like Abraham, people like David. And he says, for people who speak this way, they make it clear that they're actually seeking a homeland. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So, Salt Company, tonight, I want you to know that your heart, it was fashioned for heaven. Your best life is not this life. You were made for another world. Peter, he calls this our living hope. And so tonight, it's really simple. We're just going to ask the question, what is the hope of heaven? And then how should we live because of it? So look with me at, at verse 3. In verse 3, we see this first, that heaven, it's a gift that we don't deserve. Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So get this, in God's great mercy, he has actually made the greatest possible reversal happen in our lives. Jesus Christ, he was born into the world so that you and I can be born again. 
We've all been physically born once into a world that is sinful, but Jesus came so that we could be spiritually reborn by his mercy into a new resurrected world that he's creating. He became like us so we could become like him. He was born, and when Jesus was born, he was born with a destiny to die on this earth so that we could be reborn with a destiny to live forever with him in heaven. He left heaven for earth so that we could leave earth one day for heaven. This isn't a perfect picture, but sometimes I almost picture it's like we're, we're, living this, we're living life and we're like at the bottom of the ocean, right? We're kind of swimming around down there and it's dark. And so just picture yourself down at like the bottom of the ocean and you look up and you see light. You see something out there and like you know that it's there, but it's faint and there's just a glimmer but it seems so far away. It seems like you could never get there. And you think that, yeah, maybe there's something besides this deep, dark water that I live in, but I can't quite get it. And what Jesus Christ has done is he has broken into our world. He left heaven. He came to earth, an earth corrupted and ruined by sin. And he came all the way down to the deep, deep darkness. And when he got down there with us, he didn't just like give us a map of how to swim up. He didn't give us a free ticket to to show God once we get to the top. He actually literally grabs us and then he takes us up through it with him into the light. We've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Where he goes, we go. The second thing that we see is that heaven, it's a gift that we can't lose. Peter says, we've been born again to a living in hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So, want to hear something depressing tonight. Here's what's true. We eventually lose everything and everyone that we love. If Peter says our inheritance in heaven is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, he's obviously contrasting that with what we can acquire on earth, things that are perishing, breaking down, and decaying. Pastor Paul Tripp, he calls these things on earth our our hopeless hopes, okay? These things that we put our hope in that are ultimately hopeless. And the truth is we will one day lose everything that we possess, everyone that we love, everything that we achieve in this life. I mean, have you not been betrayed yet by someone that you put your hope in to make you happy? But what if hopelessness is actually the doorway to hope? That only when the things of this world finally betray us will they lose their grip on us. This is what Peter's saying. He's saying it's not until you've begun to experience the letdown of life that you're ready for living hope. You know, there might be something in your life right now that just feels hopeless. It feels like there's just like a closed door in front of you that you can't get through. But if you would lift up your eyes, Peter would say in verse 3 that what God could actually be doing in that moment is causing you to be born again to a living hope, an open door opened by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And he says, through that door is an inheritance, an inheritance that is unlike anything that could be received or produced by ourselves on earth. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Heaven is the gift of all gifts. 
It's the greatest gift. It's the, the source of where all the good things flow. And in the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, it was written by the Apostle John. And what Jesus did with John is he actually gave him a glimpse into the future, the future of the world, where he showed him what heaven would be like. And then he asked John to record it for us so that we could just get a glimpse of heaven. So actually, why don't you flip over with me to Revelation chapter 22 in your Bible. You can just flip there. It is literally the last chapter in the Bible. And so just if you don't know much about the Bible, like go to the the very end, the last chapter, Revelation 22. And in verses one through five, we get a glimpse of, of heaven, the gift of all gifts. This is what it says. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more, and there will be no light of the lamp or of the sun, for the Lord the God will be their light, and they will reign with him forever and ever. This is a glimpse of heaven. And what I want to do is actually go back through it and just walk through it with you slowly and really ponder what this means, what it looks like. So look back with me at verse 1. John says, Then the angel showed me, Okay, like, like get this through your head, get it into your heart. This is a glimpse of what is actually really coming. This is what really awaits the world. This is what really awaits all of us who are in Christ. It says, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal. And rivers, even now, they, they bring life and they make civilizations thrive. And so there's a real like river in heaven, but even symbolically, this means that the new world will be a world thriving and bustling with opportunity and with vitality. And later on in verse one, it says it's flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb, right? This, this river, it doesn't just stand alone. Everything good about it comes from the one who is ultimately good, comes from God, the source, the one on the throne, What this means is that the reign of God in heaven will mean that finally we have an authority figure, right? We have a a leader who will lead to flourishing for all people, not just some people. Heaven will be a place of no more injustice, no more discrimination, no more systemic poverty, no more evil dictators, no more. Verse 2 says, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. So I just want you to notice here, there's there's something more profound going on, but one thing I notice is that this glimpse of heaven, it shows this this beautiful blend of, of like technology, right? A city with just organic nature. It's a it's a garden city, right? So it's like you go on a hike in the morning if you like that, but then you go on a rooftop dinner overlooking the city at night. This will be a city, like it's a real place. The leaves of the tree, they're for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. Leaves falling off a tree that are so full of goodness and of power that they bring healings to the billions of accumulated wounds from every human story and society 
throughout history. And I know that so many of us, we have deep wounds that we maybe have realized might never get fully healed in this life. But what John is saying is, there is a tree in heaven where the very leaves, they bring healing to the nations. The curse of sin is no more there. All evil has been banished by the power of God. There is no chance that sin will ever corrupt this place again. And in verse three it says, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and the servants, his servants will, will worship him. And so as good of a world this is full of beauty and pleasure that we can't even imagine, the very center of it all, the most beautiful part of it all is this lamb on the throne. We will still see his scars. He will be like a slaughtered lamb. We'll be able to remember our redemption, what Jesus did to die for us. We'll be now seeing all that he did to purchase for us this, this world. And our hearts will explode in worship. We won't hit a ceiling anymore. We won't be hindered by our sin. You know, have you ever had one of those moments where you're, you're singing at salt or in church and you just, you get lost in worshiping God? In heaven, it'll be like that all the time. You won't hit a ceiling. You will blow right past it. You will have such a capacity for worship and joy that you can't even comprehend it right now. And in verse four, it says that we will see his face and his name will be on our foreheads. We will see his face to gaze into the face of God. Right now, we, we only see him partially and even that partial vision is greater than anything that this world has to offer. But in heaven one day, we will see him face to face and because of what Christ has done for us to, to purify us and to make us holy, we're actually gonna look at God and be able to enjoy him fully and he will look at us and enjoy us because he's made us holy like Jesus. And there will be worship in the deepest parts of our hearts, the type of worship, the type of exaltation that we have always longed for. But, but heaven, it's not gonna be like just like this one big church service, right? Where we have to set up billions and billions of chairs for all the different people, right? I think that we're going to do plenty of that, plenty of singing to God, but no, heaven is going to be one big worshiping kingdom, a city, a world, a community. We're going to be doing stuff. We're going to be enjoying the Lord as we do stuff and one another unhindered by sin. And then in verse five, it says, in night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. We will reign forever and ever. We don't have time to get into forever and ever tonight, but what we need to know is that heaven will be a very active place. It will be the greatest adventure, the most fulfilling work, the most purposeful existence that we could ever have beyond what we could even imagine. And shockingly, we will be so transformed by the power of God that we have become the type of people that Jesus Christ can look at and say, reign with me forever and ever. We will be qualified for that. This is the living hope that we have been born again to by the mercy of God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The French theologian, John Calvin, he says this, the end of the resurrection is eternal happiness. This is heaven, eternal happiness, 
of whose excellence scarcely the minutest part can be described by all the human tongues in the world. And then he says, when we begin to make progress in meditating on heaven, we are still only halting at the very entrance. This little glimpse that we just got, it's from the last chapter of the Bible, and the author C.S. Lewis, he, he imagines heaven like this. He says, you know, it's, it's the beginning of the real story. It's the beginning of the real story where all of our life in this world and all of our adventures have only been the cover and the title page. And at last, feel your heart just melt here. At, at last, after all that stuff, we will begin chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and which every chapter is better than the one before. So we're going to stop there for, for the sake of time and, and so we don't pass out. But since I've got the microphone, do you have time for one more quote that I just, I just want to say? Okay, so this is finishing up John Calvin's thought. This is what he says about heaven. He says, it, it is so glorious that it is necessary for us to cultivate sobriety in this matter. We can't drink too deeply of heaven. We need to cultivate sobriety in this matter, lest, unmindful of our feeble capacity we presume to take too lofty of a flight and we become overwhelmed by the brightness of heaven's glory. My translation would be if we, like, like our, our little brains and little hearts are, do not yet have the capacity to comprehend what heaven is without actually like exploding us. It's like dangerous for us to, to look anymore at heaven. So we're actually gonna stop. We're gonna stop there. And I just wanna close tonight by giving us four closing encouragements for our journey towards heaven, and we find them in verses five through nine of this passage. Okay, four closing encouragements. Number one, Salt Company. Your future glory in heaven is guarded by God. This is verse five. He says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So if you're in Christ, Peter says, you are guarded by God's power. And if you remember last week, the God who loved you and chose you before the foundation of the world, he will never unchoose you. Okay, the spirit of God who dwells inside of you, sanctifying you, he will never move out. The Jesus who sprinkled you with his blood, he will never need to shed any more blood for your sins. The cross was enough. You belong to him. And so, as Christians, it's, it's by faith that we hold on to God, right? We, we open the empty hands of faith and we grab on to Jesus and we trust in him alone. But here's the thing, guys. He holds on to us even tighter with his mighty hand, right? He won't let us go. You are secure as God's grip on you. And so tonight, if you're caught in a season of sin or disobedience or doubt, I want you to take this moment as we hear the words of 1 Peter as a moment where God is pulling you back, tightening his grip on you. He won't let you go. Number two, God's purposes are greater than your pain, Salt Company. This is verse six. 
And this isn't to diminish your pain in any way. It's actually to magnify God's purposes over and above your pain, right? If your pain is great, just realize that God's good plan for you in your pain is greater. Listen to what Peter says. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Okay, he's not saying that we actually rejoice in our pain. He's saying we rejoice in our salvation despite our pain because we know that it's temporary and we know that even though it truly grieves us, even though it it doesn't quite feel like bliss, it feels like endurance, we have this joy in the midst of grief. The word for that biblically is hope. But we don't experience that if we fail to set our minds on the hope of heaven. Actually, the more we pay attention to our heavenly future, the more joy we have in this present moment, even if this present moment is painful. And so what is God's purpose for us? Well, number three, God's purpose, verse seven, verse six and seven, God, he is more committed to making you like Christ than changing your circumstances. This is encouragement number three. He says, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though it perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter's saying that the real gold, right, the thing of real value in this life is us being transformed into the people who God is pleased with. People who have been made like Jesus, transformed from objects of wrath to objects of love. Right, like the type of people that Jesus, he can look at and say, reign with me forever. The type of people that Jesus can look at and say, you are worthy of praise and honor and glory. And Peter, he continues in verses eight and nine and he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory because you're obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of of your souls. Okay, so college students, don't miss this because what Peter just did is he actually just told you the great goal and outcome of your life, right? You're in college trying to figure out like, what does my teacher want for me here? What does my professor want for me? What do my parents want for me? What do my future jobs want for me? What is the goal? What is the outcome? Peter says, hey, let me tell you the goal and the outcome for your life. He says, the first great goal of your life is God, knowing him, Loving him, rejoicing in him, being satisfied in him. You were created to rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory at the sight of your God. And the crazy news is that when you rejoice in him like that, he is actually glorified in you. That's why Peter, he opens up this and he says, blessed is the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ because of the joy that he's given his people. This is the first great goal of life. God, knowing him. And then the the second goal is to become like God. Not to become God, but to become like God. Okay, the outcome of your faith is to become like the object of your faith, Jesus Christ. In other words, the end goal of becoming a Christian is to become like Christ. The end goal of our faith, our trusting Jesus so tightly is that eventually, through, through it all, through the adventure of this life, through the suffering of this life, we trust Jesus so tightly 
That Peter says it's like the fires and, and trials of this life. They, they, they burn everything else away except for the parts of us that look like Jesus so that in the end, we result in praise and honor and glory. And Salt Company, this is what God is most committed to in your life. And so when you face trials, when you face hardships and you suffer, pray to God that he would change your circumstances because he does and he can. And he invites you to pray to him. And he empathizes with you. But just know this. His highest priority is your eternal glory, not your temporary satisfaction. And then lastly, here is the fourth encouragement for our journey towards heaven. Focusing on Jesus is what fuels our faith. This is verses 8 and 9 again. Focusing on Jesus will fuel your faith. Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory because you're obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So in this long winding road called life, we're we're pilgrims, right? We're aliens and exiles, strangers on the earth, but in our journey to heaven, how do we persevere on this long road? We look to Jesus. He says, though you have not now seen him, you believe in him. You see him with the eyes of your face, your faith, because one day you're going to see him face to face. Okay, so don't take too long of a look at yourself. Don't take too long of a look at your sin. Look to Jesus. Focus on him. That's what fuels our faith. That's what fuels the journey. And when we do this, it, it actually, what it feels like for me is, is it feels like my, my heart is, is like aching, but with, with joy. Aching with joy. Because we, we have him, but not yet fully, right? Our hearts, they ache with a desire that nothing else in this world can satisfy because believe it or not, we were made for another world. Our hearts were fashioned for heaven. And Salt Company, you know the best thing to do, the best thing I've found to do with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory is to just let it explode out of you in song. Okay, so try to hold it in yourself for just a minute as I pray, but then we're going to let it out together with a couple more songs tonight. Let's pray. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, we bless you. We worship you. We, as we read the words on the page and as we let them sink into our hearts, we are so ready for heaven. God, put wind in our sails tonight as we we journey toward heaven, our home. Jesus, thank you for coming down here to get us. Holy Spirit, thank you for giving us new life. Father, thank you for adopting us into your family. God, and would you make Salt Company, would you make us a, a group of people here in Madison that though we are strangers and exiles on our own campus, we have a joy about us that is inexpressible and filled with glory and demands an explanation. God, would you make that true of us because you say it is in your word. We love you. 
We give you all the glory. You are our living hope. Amen.